Let's take our Bibles now as you remain standing and let's read together Acts chapter 15 verses 1 through 12. Now hear God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they were come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Pray with me this morning as we come to consider God's word. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for revealing yourself to us in your word. For without it, Father, even in our humanness, let alone our sinfulness, we would never, ever be able to know you. We would never, ever be able to know your plan of redemption and salvation. And we would never, ever be able to know how it is that we can be saved and redeemed and engrafted into the family of God. So, Father, we give you praise and we thank you for your word, which is your word and inspired, breathed out by you and by your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that it is full of living and active power in our lives, and so we ask this morning that you would illuminate its truth to us, that you would help us to understand it, and that you would help us, Father, to not just be hearers of the Word, but more and more to be doers of the Word. Lord, would you use your Word, like the double-edged sword that it is, to penetrate down into the very recesses of our hearts and lives, and to expose any sin that remains in us. Father, that we might confess it and repent of it, and Father, that we might continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, may the the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your word this morning, and we ask it in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 
Well, last week, if you'll remember, back there with me here today, last week sort of in, in preparation to dive into Acts chapter 15, we took a look at that episode between Paul and Peter from Galatians chapter 2, which I suggested to you took place just before the major event, the, the Jerusalem Council that is recorded here in Acts chapter 15. So in between the end of chapter 14 and including verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 and before the Jerusalem Council, that's when I believe the events of Galatians chapter 2 that we looked at last week took place. Some people disagree with that timing in terms of Paul's confrontation with Peter and and argue that what went on between Paul and Peter took place later after the Jerusalem council. But I suggested to you last week that I think it happened just before the council that that started to convene in verse 3 here of chapter 15 because of several clues that there are in the text of chapter 14 and chapter 15. You'll remember all the way back about a month ago to when we were studying chapter 14 together, Paul and Barnabas had been traveling all around the various regions in the area of of Asia Minor, which is the area that we know as modern-day Turkey. This was their first missionary journey that they had gone on in order to bring the gospel into the Gentile world now in areas like Pamphylia in the south of Asia Minor. And then in Pisidia, up in the mountains to the north where Pisidian Antioch was, and and then the region of Galatia over to the east about 80 miles where they visited the cities of Iconium and and Lystra. And of course, Paul would write the, the, the epistle, the letter to the Galatians to those churches that were planted on that first missionary journey sometime later. And then they would travel then down to Cilicia where the city of Derby was, and then they retraced their steps, and they went back, having planted churches in all of those areas, they went back to those regions so that they could strengthen the believers and continue to minister to them all there, before ultimately returning all the way back to Syria, which is up to the north of Judea and Jerusalem, and they came back to the city of Syrian Antioch there, and you remember that place because that's where the gospel had first been brought to the Gentiles, right? By Peter in the household of Cornelius, which, which we learned about way back in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And now in, in Syrian Antioch, there's a large thriving church that's growing and that's sort of home base for Paul and Barnabas and that's where four, chapter 14 ends with them coming back to Syrian Antioch. And see, in Galatians chapter 2, that is where Paul said the confrontation between him and Peter took place in Syrian Antioch. And the essence of that conflict, you remember from last week, was that that Peter, who had preached the gospel to the Gentiles there in Antioch and had eaten with them and was, was fellowshipping with them, he had then come to be out of step with the gospel that he'd been preaching, that he'd brought to the Gentiles. Because at some point, Peter had become intimidated by a a group of people who were insisting that it was wrong for Peter, as a Jew, to eat Gentile foods and to be eating and to be fellowshipping with Gentile people. And so Peter, 
lost his nerve. And Peter started acting hypocritically, you remember, by, by pulling away from the Gentiles. And as a leader in the church there in Antioch, he was influencing other Jewish believers to do the same thing. Even Barnabas was influenced. And so Paul had to come and confront Peter to his face and confront that hypocrisy and confront that sin. And the reason why I think all of that took place before Acts chapter 15 and verse 3 and was what was going on somewhere in Acts 15 verses 1 and 2, the reason why I think that's the timing of it is, see that the council that meets in Jerusalem here in chapter 15, they met in order to discuss the exact same issue that Paul had confronted Peter with up in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. The big debate here in Acts 15 was whether or not Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And the people who were insisting that they did, that the Gentiles did need to to be circumcised and do certain things in order to be saved as prerequisites of salvation were the same people who had told Peter up in Antioch that he shouldn't be eating and, and fellowshipping with Gentiles. Because, they said, the Gentiles are unclean. The Gentiles haven't kept the laws of Moses. The Gentiles eat unclean food. Peter shouldn't be eating that food because it's unclean and it's forbidden by the law of Moses. So see, the same legalistic false teaching that insisted that good works were a required prerequisite in order to obtain salvation, in order to earn God's favor, in order to be cleansed from sin, that same legalism was at the heart of both Paul's confrontation of Peter in Antioch and the controversy that broke out in Jerusalem here in Acts 15. So notice that at the council, where they discuss all of this in chapter 15, where all the apostles get together to to talk about and to deal with this issue of how the Gentiles are to be included in the church, at this council, along with Paul, it was Peter, wasn't it? And it was James, whose disciples had been the ones intimidating Peter up, up in Antioch. But now those two guys, along with Paul, Peter and James, along with Paul, these are the guys here in Acts 15 who are, who are arguing most vocally, most passionately, for the Gentiles to be accepted. And for the reality that salvation comes by the grace of God alone apart from works. And see, that, that leads me to believe that when, when Peter was wavering on all of this, was a time before the Jerusalem council. And that after Paul confronted it, in Galatians chapter 2, Peter repented, and James repented, and Barnabas repented fully of all of that hypocrisy. And now they're more passionate than ever to defend the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, and to include the Gentiles into the church. So see, now, having covered all of that ground last week, that brings us here now into the heart of Acts chapter 15, into the heart of this controversy that wasn't just brewing up in Antioch, but that had come to erupt in the church and in Jerusalem even, where the apostles were, over the inclusion of Gentiles in the church. 
Certain men, verse 1 says, came to Jerusalem or came to Antioch insisting that unless a person gets circumcised according to the custom of Moses, he cannot be saved. Salvation from sin, they claimed, was dependent on this physical action that people have to do in order to get saved. And as verse 5 says, it also depends on the Gentiles being taught and, and conforming to the Old Testament laws of Moses. And notice there in verse 5, it says that it was certain believers who were insisting on this, who were teaching this. So followers of Jesus are the ones insisting on this. But it says that they were believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees who rose up and insisted and were teaching that eternal salvation is conditioned on human obedience to good works. Now you know who the Pharisees are, right? They were that sect within Judaism that were known for their super rigorous adherence to the law that was revealed in the Old Testament. And in fact, their obedience to the law went beyond the law that was revealed by God in the Old Testament in a lot of ways because what they were known for, one of the things they were known for was adding laws, adding rules, adding regulations on top of what God had specified in the Word, sort of as as hedges in order to protect against ever getting even close to violating the law of God. So, for example, here's what the Pharisees did. If the law of God in the Old Testament said that Israelites were not to work on the Sabbath, right? That's what God revealed. The Pharisees added all kinds of extra, very meticulous regulations and prohibitions about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath in order to make sure that no one ever could possibly be considered to be working. A woman, for example, was forbidden not by Scripture, but by the custom of the Pharisees, a woman was forbidden from looking at her image in a mirror on the Sabbath because if she did, she might see a gray hair on her head and then be tempted to pluck it out, which would constitute work. And so now she's violated God's law, so they've added all of these extra laws. See, and they had dozens of them. They had hundreds of them. Regulations like that because they were super zealous outwardly to be pure in conforming to the law of God. Now, some of those people who grew up that way, some of those Pharisees who had lived this way all of their lives had now come to believe in Jesus. Like Paul had, he used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like Nicodemus had come to believe in Jesus. But some of them, now that they're believers in Jesus, are are confused now about how to understand their faith in Jesus in light of this zeal to keep the law. Now these people saw, these Jewish people, saw Christianity as, as an outgrowth of Judaism, which of course in some sense it was. All of the promises that God had made in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, aren't they? That's what the New Testament clearly reveals. And so in the first century, these Jewish Pharisees who had come to accept that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah simply believed that Old Testament Judaism resolved itself in Christianity. Christianity was the the logical end of Judaism. And so they 
believed that all of the great blessings that God had promised in the Old Testament Scriptures were, were fulfilled and were given to them in and through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And again, in a very real sense, they were right about that. But see, that's why they ended up being confused and getting very, very, very concerned about how Gentiles, people from non-Jewish nations and heritages, could just all of a sudden be included into Christianity, into the church, into all of the blessings that God had promised to the Jews. They're a little jealous, see? Look, we, we devoted our whole lives to this. Right? They, they'd spent their entire lives studying the Scriptures, obeying the law. And they felt entitled to the blessings of God now. And now you're just going to give it to the Gentiles too? I mean, you can kind of understand the concern, right? The Gentile people were, were pagans, right? In the literal sense of the word. They were, they were all almost universally people who had spent their lives entrenched in, in false pagan religions. All of which involved all kinds of rampant, godless idolatry and, and, and immorality. The Gentiles had not been brought up spending their lives learning all of the truth that God reveals in His Word. They hadn't learned the law of God. They hadn't spent their lives cultivating habits of of obedience to God's law. They'd been living in habitual sin all their lives, and now they're just just supposed to be included now in the covenant community of God's people? They're just supposed to benefit from all the blessings that God promised to His people just like that? Just because they heard a sermon? about Jesus and believed. That's it. Believe that's all it takes. I mean, it would be one thing, right, for a gentile person to kind of come knocking on the door of Judaism. Like the Ethiopian eunuch had way back in chapter 8, he's reading the Old Testament scriptures. Or like Cornelius had in in chapter 10, right? He had become interested and devoted to the teachings of scriptures and to the the God of the Old Testament and in fact it said that he was a God-fearing man. Who, who had heard the, the revelation from God in the Bible taught. And he'd become a devotee to that truth. And so it's one thing for a guy like that now to be told about the Messiah and to come to faith and be included in the blessings of God to his chosen people. But for crying out loud, the party of the Pharisees is saying, Paul and Barnabas are just running all over the civilized world calling Gentiles willy-nilly in mass who have never shown any interest in the God of Scripture, who have, who have lived their whole lives in pagan idolatry and immorality, to come and just be a part of the Christian community now. So you can understand the, the concern a little bit, right? And so these believers in Jesus who had been Pharisees, whose whole lives had been devoted to learning God's truth and worshiping the, the God of the Old Testament and obeying His law rigorously, they had this concern about the Gentiles just being ushered in in mass. They're saying, you know, look, we're, we're happy for them to be brought in, but for goodness sakes, we've got to do it in the right way. And in their thinking, the right way was to make sure that these Gentile converts were circumcised like Jews, and were taught all of the Old Testament laws. In essence, see, what they were insisting on was that in order for Gentiles to become Christians, for them to become saved according to the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, first they had to become 
Jewish, is basically what they're saying. Because they thought salvation is for the Jews. You can't just give it away to anyone without them being converted to, to Jewishness first, which meant circumcision and the law. And that's how a very real concern to not let paganism and idolatry and immorality come flooding into the church combined with a misunderstanding about what Jesus had come to do turned into this legalistic insistence that salvation from sin is conditioned on certain things that the Gentiles had to do first in order to merit it. And that's the big debate. That's the big controversy that the early church had to face here in Acts chapter 15. In the wake of the gospel being brought to the Gentiles through the ministry of Peter, Acts 10, Acts 11, and Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13 and 14, now these Pharisaical believers are concerned and putting this stipulation on the Gentiles. So, hearing that this is a big deal, not just up in Antioch where they're facing it, but it's also being taught down in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas set out, verses 2 and 3 say, to go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders of the church there and to try to sort this mess out. And on their way, verse 3 says, they're traveling south, they've got an entourage, a group of other Christians, brothers, verse 3 says, in Christ, fellow disciples, fellow followers of Jesus that they're traveling with. And as they all made their way south from Syria, through Phoenicia and Samaria, towards Judea and Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, it says, were describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, right? From all over their first missionary journey in Asia Minor and Cyprus. They're, they're, they're telling in detail everything that God had done in Pisidian Antioch, and in Iconium, and in Lystra, and in Derby and in every place that they went with the good news of Jesus, and how their preaching of that good news was met by the Gentiles in all of those places with rejoicing, and with faith, and with glorifying God, and glorifying God's Word. And when the brothers and sisters in Christ who were traveling down with Paul and Barnabas heard all those wonderful stories, it says they rejoiced. Now, do you see what Paul and Barnabas are doing? Even before they get to Jerusalem to take part in the council there and the discussion of what to do about the Gentiles. You see what they're doing with this crowd as they're traveling? They're putting all of the focus, they're putting all of the the emphasis squarely onto what God Himself had sovereignly done with regard to the Gentiles in order to bring them in and call them His people. Look, it's not us. This is what God's doing. Right? I mean, how else could you explain that people who lived in the world and loved the world, Gentile pagan people who loved the world and loved their sin and loved all the false promises of all of the false religions and were opposed to the truth of God and were committed to suppressing it in their unrighteousness, and were devoted to whatever system of teaching afforded them the most worldly and fleshly indulgence, how else could you explain that now, hearing that they were so sinful, 
that the one eternal, almighty, holy God had to come Himself down here in the person of the only begotten Son in order to make a sacrifice that they could never ever make to reconcile them to the God who they had alienated themselves from in in this wanton sinfulness that they always lived in. How else could you explain that on hearing this gospel, those godless, worldly, idolatrous, immoral, pagan Gentiles rejoiced if not for the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts? They glorified the God that they'd heard of. They glorified the Word of God because they believed it was true. They believed that the promises that God made in His Word were real and that they were really accomplished and fulfilled by the birth of this Jewish baby in Bethlehem who's the Savior of the world. How can you explain that they believe that and are willing to put their lives on the line in order to live by faith in that truth? The only explanation for the fact that everywhere Paul and Barnabas went, Pagan idolatrous Gentiles actually believed this gospel, not only believed it, rejoiced in it. And that months later, right, when Paul and Barnabas went back to those cities that they originally preached in, those Gentiles were still there rejoicing, meeting together in churches, worshiping together. They were persevering in their faith. They were enduring even through persecution because their love for God through their faith in Jesus transcended all of a sudden any other love in this world. The only explanation is the sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit in their hearts and lives through the power of the gospel. And so as Paul and Barnabas travel with this company of brothers in Jesus who have also experienced this new life-creating, transforming, sovereign power of God in their own hearts and lives, they rejoiced. They rejoiced to hear what God was doing among the Gentiles. This same holy, merciful God was sovereignly redeeming all kinds of people from all over the place and all to the praise of His glory. And when they all then came down to Jerusalem... It says they were welcomed by the church there, by the elders of the church, by the apostles who were in Jerusalem. But again, there was this controversy. And some of the believers belonged to this party of the Pharisees and were saying, okay, look, we're glad all these Gentiles are believing in Jesus, but it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Otherwise, it is not possible for them to really be saved. So, verse 6, the apostles and the elders gathered together in order to consider this matter. And after they all debated about it and talked about it a good deal, Peter then stood up and did exactly what Paul and Barnabas had done on their way down from Antioch. Peter stood up and in fact did what Peter had done before in chapter 11, after Cornelius' household was saved, and people first said to him, you can't eat with them. What did Peter do? He said, look, this wasn't my doing. This is what God did. Right? Now, here in Jerusalem, 
Peter does the same thing. He stands up, he puts all of the focus, he puts all of the emphasis on what the holy, merciful God of heaven himself had sovereignly chosen to do in order to bring salvation to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. Verse 7, brothers, you know that in the early days, he's, he's talking about the early days of the church, He's talking about chapter 10 and 11. You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Again, he's talking about the first time the gospel came to the Gentiles there in chapter 10. Peter was at Cornelius' house. He was... He was up on the roof around noon. He got hungry. He started to faint. God showed him that vision of all of those animals coming down like on a sheet, including animals that the Old Testament law had said were unclean, that Jewish people couldn't eat because they were supposed to separate themselves from the pagan Gentiles and not be like them and not eat like them to identify themselves as God's unique people. And now God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord. I'd I'd never defile myself by eating any of that unclean food. And God said, do not call unclean what I have called clean. Meaning, the food first, right? Now that Jesus had come, now that the new covenant had dawned, all of those old dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law were abrogated. God called all animals clean to eat now. But even more importantly, in doing that, God had removed the separation between Jews and Gentiles. God had thrown the doors to the kingdom of heaven wide open for the Gentiles to be brought in. And Peter understood, Peter got it there in chapter 10, that it was the Gentiles, ultimately, that he wasn't to call unclean anymore. Not just the animals, because God was now cleansing the Gentiles through faith in the gospel, just like he had cleansed Peter and Paul and the other Jews. So now, of course, you see the significance now coming all the way back to chapter 15 here in terms of what's going on when the party of the Pharisees were saying that the Gentiles were too unclean for salvation. They couldn't be saved until they got cleaned up through circumcision and started keeping the Old Testament laws, including all those dietary laws. And so Peter... Peter employs the same strategy that he did when he first got criticized back up in chapter 11. And the same strategy that Paul and Barnabas employed on their way down to Jerusalem to face this controversy. Peter just now simply points to the sovereign choice, to the sovereign purpose, to the sovereign initiative and action and decree of God. God made a choice among you. I didn't I didn't do this of my own initiative. God gave me a vision. And the whole purpose and message of God was the inclusion of the Gentiles whom He has cleansed. I'm following God's lead. I'm doing what God said. I ate with the Gentiles because God said that they were not unclean if they had faith in Christ. He told me 
not to make any distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. He revealed to me that by His grace, He's bringing salvation to all of us in the same way. Because what we need to realize, He's saying, is none of us is more or less unclean than any other. We all need the same amount of cleansing grace from God that only Christ can bring. We all need to be washed. We all need to be cleansed. We all need to be saved by the sheer grace of God alone. And how does that cleansing, saving, redeeming grace of God come? Not by being circumcised. Not by our own efforts to obey the law. Not by keeping all of the dietary restrictions and abstaining from certain kinds of food. That's not how you get cleansed enough to be in the kingdom. Now the grace of God that saves from sin, that creates new life and new hearts, that reconciles people who were alienated from the holy God in their sin, that saving grace comes in all of its cleansing power through faith alone. How does anyone, whether he's been a law-keeping Jew all his life, or an idol-worshiping pagan all his life, How does anyone go from alienation from the one true God to salvation, to reconciliation to God, to acceptance by God? See, that that boundary between alienation and salvation, that's exactly what's at stake here in Acts 15. This is what all the controversy is all about. And the party of the Pharisees has been insisting because they grew up all their lives thinking this way, they're insisting that the boundary between alienation from God and salvation by God consists of personal obedience, self-righteousness, good works that are done in order to merit salvation and cross that boundary. So that's why they're demanding circumcision, conformity to the law from the Gentiles. They've got to do what we thought we had to do. That's the only way they think to cross the boundary. But see, Peter has learned the error of that thinking because God showed it to him. God God declared it to him in the household of Cornelius. And then when Peter got intimidated and shied away from it, when he lost his nerve and started once again to behave like Jews were inherently more clean than Gentiles and promote that separation again, and stop eating with them, stop fellowshipping with them, Paul confronted him and, and Peter repented because he realized he was truly walking out of step with the gospel. So here he is now, more convinced than ever, having been, having been humbled in his own hypocrisy, Here he is now bold to proclaim that the real boundary between alienation from God and salvation and reconciliation to God, the real boundary is faith. Faith in who God is and faith in what God has done. Faith in what Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, did. Not faith in what I can do. Faith in what He did to redeem us and to reconcile us to Himself. 
And Peter hammers that emphasis on faith three times in his speech here between verses 7 through 11, right? Verse 7, God made a choice that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God and what? Stop eating pork? No, they should believe faith. Verse 9, and God made no distinction between us and the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts, how? Through acts of obedience? No, by faith. That's what cleansed them. Verse 11, we believe, we have faith now, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, in the same way that the Gentiles will, which is how? By faith. And so, the problem with the conclusion that the party of the Pharisees had come to was the same problem that the Pharisees had had all along, right? And the heart of the, of the Pharisees' problem all along, even when Jesus was confronting them in the Gospels, was that while they were so focused on obeying the law, they were focused on an outward kind of obedience and not on the heart. That was the fundamental, essential, central problem with the Pharisees. That's what Jesus was always condemning him for. He wasn't just condemning him for adding regulations to God's law. That's bad enough. He wasn't just condemning him for preferring the traditions of men to the laws of God. That's bad enough. But see, the, the real issue, the, the reason why they were doing that, the heart of the matter, is that the, the Pharisees ignored the heart. Right? That was Jesus' constant condemnation of them while he was walking the earth and, and locking horns with them. You guys are like whitewashed tombs, he said, right? You look great on the outside. All this obedience, all this conformity. But on the inside, which is where it matters the most, there's all this spiritual rot and decay. You, you guys are like cups that are polished to an impeccable shine on the outside, but inside, in your hearts, It's just full of filth and greed and hypocrisy and pride and self-righteousness. So yeah, they obeyed God's law outwardly, but they didn't love God in their hearts inwardly. They didn't love other people inwardly. And Jesus' message was, inwardly is what counts. The heart is what matters to God. God is not impressed one bit with outward compliance, without internal, inward devotion and love. Luke 16, 15, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God's not impressed. And see, this, when Jesus confronted that, when Jesus taught them that, that, that it's all really about what, what, what's going on on the inside, if obedience is flowing from a heart that loves God, that's great, but if it's not, it's, it's hypocrisy. And God cares about the heart. This shouldn't have been news to them, right? Because all over the Old Testament Scriptures that the Pharisees were such experts in reading and even memorizing, 
God is constantly saying the same thing to His people who are sometimes outwardly obeying, but but out of rock-hard hearts. Go to the temple and sacrifice, and God says, I hate it because your hearts are hard and don't love me. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right? They do all the right things with all the wrong motives, with all the wrong heart attitudes, and God said, I hate it. God said, I want your hearts to love me. I want your hearts to love one another. I want my love to flow through you in acts of mercy and justice towards one another. And if it's not, don't come into my temple and do all of the right stuff and sing all of the right songs. Because it's just hypocrisy. Their hearts in the Old Testament were rock hard and ice cold. All their best deeds were, Jeremiah, filthy rags because they were done from wicked sinful hearts so the whole old testament right is is just screaming from genesis to malachi that what they needed what all men need is not to do more good works out of cold dead hard hearts of stone and sin What people need are new hearts. Hearts that love God. Hearts that are consumed with the fear of the Lord. Hearts that revere God. Hearts that want nothing more than to honor God by keeping His law. And no amount of outward compliance on their part could accomplish the creation of new hearts. That's got to be a supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what God promised He was going to do, right? In Ezekiel chapter 36, from all your idols, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to give you new hearts. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of living flesh. And I will put my Holy Spirit in you. And I will cause you that way with new hearts. That's how I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, not hypocritically, but out of love for me. That was the great prophesied, promised hope of the new covenant, of what God would do through the promised Messiah. He's going to cleanse people from the inside out, He's going to give them new hearts out of which would come genuine obedience. Not just hypocritical external compliance that came out of self-righteous pride and and out of unloving hearts. And the way that God would work to create those new hearts, to remove the hard, cold, dead hearts of stone, and give living hearts of flesh, the way He was going to do it would be through faith in the Messiah and in all that the Messiah would do to save and redeem and give new and everlasting life. God knows the heart. God cares about the heart. God is not impressed with outward compliance, without inward devotion. And Peter knows it now. And here... In Acts 15, knowing this truth that outward conformity to the law means nothing to God apart from inward devotion and love, now Peter is drawing, see, the corollary truth in regard to the Gentiles, which is this. 
that a person's external defilement does not and will not and cannot prevent God, who knows the heart, from imparting inward purity and cleansing through simple, humble faith in Jesus. And that was the reality that these believers from the party of the Pharisees had been unable to come to terms with. Because they were habitually focused on the outside. They're looking at these Gentiles and going, look what filthy people they are. Look how they grew up. Look how they dress. Look how they eat. Look at their backgrounds. They're looking at all of the bad, sinful, idolatrous, immoral things that they've done in their lives, which is real defilement. But see, in their own pride now, these people from the party of the Pharisees are unable to see and appreciate and rejoice over what the living God had done on the inside to cause them to rejoice in the gospel and repent of their sin and begin to walk by faith in Christ. He'd cleansed them. He'd filled them by the power of the Holy Spirit with living faith. He'd crucified them with Christ Jesus and raised them to newness of life, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. And for today, as we, as we press into this really important chapter of God's Word for the next several weeks, for today... This is the emphasis that I want you to walk away from, that I want all of us to walk away with, not from, with, and take home with us. God is impressed with the heart and not just what you do on the outside. And don't be the kind of person that looks at what another person has done on the outside and concludes that they are impervious from being washed and cleansed by the Holy Spirit and by the grace of Jesus Christ. And certainly, don't ever think that because of some sin that somebody else has committed that makes you just disgusted with them, that their heart was less clean than yours. That somehow you were more worthy of God's grace than they. This is the emphasis. See, the question to ask ourselves in light of Acts 15 here is twofold. Given this reality that God knows the heart, how do we think about ourselves and how do we think about others? Ask yourself, as we come to a close here, ask yourself in honest self-evaluation, Is your focus primarily inward or outward like a Pharisee? When it comes to others. When it comes to others, how easy is it for so many Christians to see other Christians in a primarily external way? Instead of seeing them as God sees them in Christ. How easy is it for us to focus on where they've been? on what they've done, the lives of sinfulness that they've led that were far worse than our lives, right, somehow? And wonder, could God really save someone like that? When 
their own sinful hearts were no less hard towards God, no less dead, no less full of spiritual decay and pride and greed and self-righteousness than any other. This is what the Pharisees did. They said, well, look how good we've been and look how bad and dirty they've been. And God said, but on the inside, there's no difference. You're no cleaner. Does that impulse to evaluate others by the outside primarily, does that impulse linger in you even though you're a believer? Does that instinct to compare yourselves to others and think like the story of the Pharisee and the publican, thank God I'm not a sinner like that. Or has God taught you to say, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. And with the Apostle Paul, Christ died for sinners among whom I am the foremost. The sin that bothers me the most in this world is not his or his or his or the guy down on the Pacific Garden Mall. It's my sin. Does that outward kind of focus linger in you? That that sort of Pharisee, I think, it, I think it probably lingers in all of us. I think there's residues of it in all of us. So pray for the grace of God that has saved a sinner such as you to humble you, to help you, to help us all to recognize, like Peter did, that in terms of what matters most to God, the heart, in terms of how God, who is holy, sees us all, There was no distinction between someone else's sinful heart and yours. You were no more worthy. They were no less worthy. And remind yourself that whatever the outward expression of their sinful heart looked like, in contrast to your outward expression, now in Christ Jesus, through simple, humble faith in Him, whoever they are, whatever they've done, now there is no condemnation if they're in Christ Jesus. And so be careful fostering an attitude of condemnation towards them. And pray that seeing all redeemed sinners the way that God sees them and sees us, Again, there won't be any hint of condemnation towards them from us. Then, when it comes to ourselves, on the one hand, how easy is it for us to cultivate this kind of pride of the Pharisees and try to justify ourselves before men? Try to impress people with how good we are, with how holy we are in our outward obedience and piety, when on the inside maybe our heart is being driven by pride and self-righteousness and that's why we're obeying. Not because we love God, not because we love other people, but because we want other people to be impressed with us. And again, I believe that the residues at least of that kind of sanctimonious, holier-than-thou kind of pharisaical formalism I think that lingers and remains in all of us. And so may God, by His grace and by the power of His Word and Holy Spirit, help us see it with humility. And may we pray for Him to continue the work of of washing us and cleansing us of, of any of that hypocrisy and pride from the inside out so that our obedience to God comes from genuine love for Him gratitude towards Him and love for one another. And then on the other hand, here's a second thing. We'll close with this one. 
when it comes to ourselves, the other side of the coin is this. It can also be very, very easy for a lot of Christians to be so focused on their own sin that they can actually become distracted from the great reality of who they are in Christ. That they've been buried with Christ in baptism. That they've been raised with Christ to newness of life. That through faith they've been washed. Past tense, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Cleansed, sanctified, even though sin remains in them. That in Christ all of that sin is washed, is paid for, is covered by the perfect blood of the Lamb. And that His spotless, perfect righteousness covers them from head to toe and that as new creations in Christ who are forgiven and justified even though they look upon themselves with contempt and with disgust because of their sin, they get distracted from the reality that God looks upon them and says, I don't condemn you. I accept you in Christ. I love you in Christ as my own precious child. So look at your life, yes. Absolutely evaluate and see the sin that remains in you. Absolutely be troubled by it. Hate it. Despise it. Like Paul hated it in his own heart and life at the end of Romans chapter 7. What a wretched man I am! And then, when you see it, That's when you've got to every single time heed those words of the late Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane. Simple. For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Look to Christ who washed you. Look to Christ who cleansed you. Look to Christ who forgave you. Look to Christ who clothed you with His righteousness. Look to Christ who became clothed by your sinfulness. And then say to God, Praise be to God, through Jesus Christ my Lord, that there is therefore now no condemnation, for I am in Christ Jesus. And He has buried me and raised me and given me a new heart. And so I will walk according to His laws because I love Him and because I'm grateful That for all of my sin, he took nails and thorns and he bled and he died. Look to Christ. For every look at self, take ten looks at him. Just say amen to that. Father God, we thank you for your word. Again, which is a two-edged sword, which is sharp and not dull in any portion of it and that is able to penetrate us and expose whatever there is in us. Sin, pride that remains, hypocrisy, selfishness, lust, greed, fear, doubt, shame, guilt, and excise it and cut it away because Your Holy Spirit, Father, and Your living and active Word is the perfect scalpel to rip it out of us and to give us new life. And so, Father, would you help us this day to see ourselves as we are in Christ Jesus and to see one another as we are in Christ Jesus, to be focused on the inside of the cup, to know the heart as it is known by God, 
and to love the God who has first loved us, to love the one who gave himself up for us, and to live our lives by faith in him, obeying him, trusting him, honoring him, glorifying him, pleasing him, not in order to impress one another, not in order to assure ourselves even that by this good deed we might call your favor. But confident, Father, that our favor before you is guaranteed in Christ Jesus and all that he has done. And confident that there is no condemnation. And loving and being grateful May we love you by obeying and keeping your commandments. Father, change us and transform us and grow us and conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, we pray. In his precious and holy name, amen. Amen. So let's take our bulletins then. And if you'll turn with me to page 11 and stand, we're going to sing, In Christ Alone My Hope is Found. Let's all sing to him.